You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen, and today I'm welcoming into the virtual studio Dr. Jacqueline Duffin, Emerita Professor in History, Hannah Chair in the History of Medicine from 1988 to 2017, Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and now an inductee into the Order of Canada. Welcome, Jackie, to the virtual studio here at CFRC. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today. And boy, oh boy, we have so many exciting things to talk to you about, uh, especially that uh, related to your lifetime of uh, exceptional research leading right up to your recent induction to the Order of Canada. And congratulations to you on that induction. Thank you. All right. So, Jackie. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your many, many research passions. Uh, well, uh, I was born on a farm near London, Ontario, and I became a doctor uh, through the old pre-med program, so when I was quite young. And I specialized in hematology, that's blood. And then I uh, found myself unable to get a job because I had married a Canadian diplomat and uh he was posted to Paris. And so I looked around for something to do and found that I couldn't practice medicine there. Uh, so I did a PhD in history. And uh, I was really lucky because I found a wonderful mentor. He was an MD PhD, uh, Croatian born, uh, historian of medicine and science. And he gave me this great topic about the history of the stethoscope. Uh, which made me fall in love with the use of manuscripts. And it's a topic that's built around the French Revolution. So it was a really interesting period to study. But when we came back to Canada, I wanted to get back into medicine and had trouble getting a job because nobody wanted to trust me because I'd been doing history for several years. Uh, so I was really lucky to get a postdoc at Ottawa. And then three years later, I was offered the Hannah Chair at Queen's. And at that time, they let me do both medicine and history. Uh, and I've been able to do both medicine and history all along, thanks to this wonderful job at Queen's and the actual existence of the Hannah Chair. And because I was cross-appointed in history and philosophy and spread a little bit thin and also working clinically in medicine, everyone left me alone. So I, I, I could work on whatever I wanted and I could teach whatever I wanted. And, and I had great support all along. And uh, I've just been so very, very lucky to have that job. Wow, what, what an amazing story that is. So uh, I can't imagine uh, being, being a medical doctor and not being able to practice, but I guess that's indicative of different licensing requirements in different countries. Yes, it was that. Um, but not only that, I had done part of my residency in Quebec, and France has an exchange program with Quebec, and 10 doctors a year can swap. Well, that was true at the time. I don't know if it's still true. It was a long time ago. Um, but I was married to a diplomat, and because I was married to a diplomat, I was not entitled to a work permit. 
And that was the insurmountable hurdle. I didn't realize it when I went there. And so it took me a while to discover why I couldn't work. And uh, it was frustrating and devastating because I was quite young. Maybe I should back up a bit and say that I had been married to a physician uh, and he and I were practicing in Thunder Bay. We had a small boy and uh, he was killed in an accident. Oh my, I'm sorry. And uh, he was cycling to work, stopped at a traffic light and he was struck by a vehicle and killed. And so this was my second chance by getting married to the diplomat. And, and um, I took my little boy with me and the little boy could speak perfect French within a, a few minutes. And my husband <laughs> was an important person and I was this newly minted hematologist with no job. It was, it was a very difficult time in my life, uh, even though I was very happy to be married again. Uh, it now seems a, a really long time ago and like a different life. And when I set out, from my farm upbringing in London, Ontario area, I never for a moment thought that I would end up living in Paris or that I would become a historian. Uh, you never really know. You never really know what's going to happen to you. <laughs> Indeed. And then uh, with a PhD from the Sorbonne, I understand. Wow. Yes. Had you, prior to uh, going to France, had you had any inklings about studying the history of medicine before? It's interesting you ask that. You know, all through uh, high school, I thought I wanted to be an archaeologist. Really? And yes. I, I grew up with a map of ancient Egypt on my bedroom wall, and I was convinced that's what I was going to do. But in those days, we had grade 13. And it, the guidance counselors lean on you and they say, oh, well, you can do anything you want. And you're a girl who can do science and you should reconsider. And And I started developing this idea that uh, history was nice, but it wasn't useful, and maybe I should do medicine instead. And in those days, you could apply out of high school right into the medical program at the University of Toronto. And and so I switched all my courses, and I, I started doing science and medicine, which I loved. I really enjoyed it. But um, then I, I I went through medical school. I completed my residency. My husband was very interested in history, and uh, my first husband, he was very interested in history, very clever, and he knew a lot of medical history. So that by the time I found myself high and dry in Paris, um, I realized eventually that I wasn't going to get a medical job. Uh, so I started thinking that I should do something that I had long neglected, something else that I hadn't been able to do. And it struck me, I can even remember where I was standing when I got the idea, just stop fussing and get on with it, do something different. And why don't you try to find out how you could do some history? I didn't think in that moment that I would do a PhD, but obviously enrolling in a graduate program is what you do if you want to uh, really learn something well. And I, was lucky that all sorts of doors opened for me, partly because of that mentor, uh, Mirko Gromek is his name. He he listened to my sad tale of woe and he said, well, here's what you do. And he, he spelled it out for me and which offices to go to, to register. And, and I did it out of politeness for him at first, but then I got really hooked <laughs> on the topic and I got hooked on the subjects and I found it was so much fun and, and I had something to do. And, it really made a big difference. Around the second year I was there, I was asked to work medically at the Canadian Embassy. Uh, so I did that and I had the right as a Canadian physician to look after Canadians. It was a small 
part-time job, but it, it did a lot for my um, self-respect to have that little job in the background. And I had a second child while we were in Paris. <laughs> we got a bunch of multitasking done. <laughs> Goodness, indeed, <laughs> indeed. What an extraordinary so story so far. And wow, we still have so much ground to cover. We're now at, at the point of entering your career as both an MD as well as a historian. Can you tell us a little bit about your early research? Well, uh, my first really big project was on the stethoscope, and uh, it was in France, but the papers that were relevant to this discovery were scattered rather widely in Brittany as well as in Paris. And uh, what they consisted of was the personal papers of the inventor, whose name was René Leinec, who lived during the French Revolution, born in 1781, died in 1826. And uh, he left behind 10,000 pages of manuscripts, uh, written with a plume. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were patient records and they were also little scientific notes that he made to himself. And then at the end of his life, he gave four years of lectures at the Collège de France. And he left behind his lecture notes. They weren't published, but they were notes on the class for today and the class for tomorrow. And uh, I was able to use those to write my dissertation for the PhD. And it was bookable in a way, but it was very thesis-y. And, and you will know well what that means. <laughs> And uh, it wasn't yet a book. Plus, um, Grimek had told me to ignore his life. I wasn't going to get it done, and I wasn't going to have enough meat in the in the topic if I started wandering off into biographical um, deep waters. So I came back to Canada and no longer had access to those papers, and we didn't have the internet. Uh, and I stumbled on a collection of papers of a single doctor who actually was born the year that Lineck died. So one project handed on to the other. And oh, okay. he was an ordinary doctor who practiced in Richmond Hill, Ontario from his farm. And he left behind 40 years of his medical day books. And the microcomputer had just been invented. <laughs> so you can <laughs> see what, what the project became was this monastic transcription of the 40 years of medical day books into a, a database, which at the time I was using um, a Apple 2C computer and, <laughs> and I could only hold three months of his work in my computer's RAM at the time. <laughs> so to finish 40 years with, I had hundred over a hundred files of his, of his, uh, uh, clinical biography, uh, but I turned that into the biography of his practice, and that actually became my first book because I still had not been able to go back to Paris, and that was a project done uh, in a postdoc at the University of Ottawa, but I landed the job at Queen's, and that meant that eventually I could get a sabbatical, and so the dissertation finally did become a book in 1998. Okay, wow. All right. And then from there, what happened? Where, where did you go from there? Well, um, as anyone who works at Queen's knows, as a, as a prof, you put a lot into teaching oh. and teaching consumes you, especially in the first few years, if you haven't inherited a syllabus and a course and been told to do X, Y, and Z. And basically, there hadn't been anyone uh, immediately ahead of me in that job so I could do what I wanted which was tremendous don't we all academics. want that job <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking it was fabulous and 
And Queens let me do what I'd always wanted to do, which was not give a course in medical history, but infiltrate the curriculum. So that when the medical students were doing anatomy, they get some history of anatomy. And when they were doing obstetrics, they get some history of obstetrics and so on. And all I had to do was convince the heads of department to give me an hour. <laughs> and of course, some of them were really forthcoming. Anatomy, obstetrics, and pathology. Here, have an hour right away. But others were really mistrustful and they didn't appreciate that history could be relevant to the present. And they didn't feel they had enough curriculum time as it was. And so they resented the idea that I would take an hour away from them. So that did not go all that well. And it, it took me three years to get up and running. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was greatly helped by uh, Duncan Sinclair and Dr. Robert Maudsley, who conducted a review of the curriculum and made a big curriculum change and then made me chair a committee. <laughs> Well, I awarded myself the hours I was missing. <laughs> and um, I had a great time because it was like going back to medical school to be relevant as a historian in the pharmacology class. You have to understand a little bit about what pharmacology is going on. And um, that was a huge privilege. And it, and it was working. Uh, maybe my professor colleagues didn't think so, but the students liked it. And they saw it a little bit as comic relief. But I had power because I asked for and got one question on every exam. <laughs> so they would not fail medical school because of getting the history question wrong, but they just might pass medical school if they got that question right. So it was enough of a motivator to uh, dignify the presence of history in the curriculum. So you asked what was next after my book on the stethoscope and what came was a textbook on the history of medicine basically aimed at Canadian medical students. And uh, that book did better than I expected. It was printed by the University of Toronto Press in 1999. And uh, the third edition has just gone back to the publisher. It's, they asked for another edition on it. And that too has been a huge privilege because I have to keep going back not only to the medicine of each chapter, the chapters are organized like the lectures, anatomy, physiology, pathology, etc. cetera. Uh, but also I have to go back to pick up on what's new in history mm -hmm. in those domains. And, and so the job generated the project and, and it created a, an audience for my work and also a demand to keep my work salient. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, I, I like how you, you're a hematologist by medical training, but your work in history clearly goes well beyond hematology. It goes into many fields of medicine. What was, what was the learning curve in terms of the medicine and the history while doing these projects or doing these chapters on topics that are outside of your own discipline? What did that look like in the research process? Well, Something I discovered, and I don't know when in my long trajectory I discovered this, is that the doing of history properly is a lot like the doing of science and medicine. And mm -hmm. I see a lot of parallels. Um, if you take a, a scientific investigation, all your listeners know that there's a, an aim, a method, materials, 
results, analysis, and conclusion. That's the standard write-up of a scientific experiment. And uh, you, as a historian yourself, will know that we always have to have a question, a clearly defined question. We have a method. There is a method to history. And we have to select our sources, which are the materials that we use. And then mm -hmm. we have to analyze them and do all the work that we can, the results, what we find from looking at primary sources and secondary sources, and then interpret and conclude. And so that parallel was very striking, but there's a third parallel to clinical medicine. And that is the patient and the doctor. The patient comes to the doctor with a problem, which in medicine we call the chief complaint. And that is the question. And the doctor has to conduct an investigation. And the first part is the patient's history which is very resonant for someone who's also a historian, but also a physical examination of the patient. These are the resources. These are the primary and secondary sources. Then the doctor has to draw upon her knowledge of the medical literature or from what she might've retained from medical school, also secondary source in a sense, to interpret the results of the history and the physical to arrive at a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And that, Exercise is something that fascinates me. Um, it's what we call medical epistemology. And if I had any right to be in the philosophy department at all, it was because of my interest in that and how diseases are made, constructed and diagnosed. And um, that was what was driving the intrigue in the work I did on the stethoscope way back. So, so these things have been intimately connected in my intellectual life all along. Uh, I don't see them as separate. Okay, thank you. So one one thing that has always uh, struck or inspired me about you and your story, I knew about this story a little bit before I had even had the opportunity to meet you in person in the hallowed halls of Watson. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to t shift our conversation to your story uh, about the testimony that led to the elevation of the Canadian nun Marie Marguerite Duville to sainthood. So this is a really fascinating story. Some of our listeners may not be aware. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about this story and how the Vatican tapped you for your medical expertise? Uh, well, again, it goes back to my salad days when I was a postdoc after the PhD at the University of Ottawa. And I was trying really hard to get a job as a doctor and uh, couldn't. And one of the hematologists who was a little bit friendly with me asked if I would be willing to read a set of bone marrows blind. And by that, she meant that there would be bone marrow samples that I would have to look at under the microscope from a patient, but she was not going to tell me anything about that patient. Uh, and this happens in medicine quite a lot when you seek an expert witness, usually for a lawsuit, which is what I imagined was going on and that the patient was probably dead and the doctor was being accused of negligence of some sort. Okay. So I agreed because I was very eager to prove myself as a card-carrying hematologist and I wanted a hematology job. And then when I got to the laboratory to pick up the slides to look at, I was dismayed because there was a huge stack of about 30 different bone marrow samples that had been taken. And each sample had maybe 20 slides attached to it. Oh, wow. It was a ton of work sitting there in front of me. And 
uh, my heart sank because I thought this was going to be a really difficult diagnosis to make and maybe I would fail and disgrace myself. So we always begin with the peripheral blood taken on the same day as the bone marrow. You correlate the bone marrow is the factory of the blood. So you look at the blood, then you look at the factory, the bone marrow. And on the first slide right away, I saw what the diagnosis was. It wasn't difficult at all. It was a flagrant form of the most aggressive leukemia that we know, acute myeloblastic leukemia. It had all the hallmarks. So there was no question that's what it was. And so I'm thinking, oh, this patient is dead. And all I could tell was that it was 1978. So it was, it was a good eight years before I was even reading these slides that this had happened. Mm -hmm. And the median survival at that time of this disease with treatment is 18 months. Yeah. Okay. So, there, so every reason to expect the patient would patient's win. dead and that it's a lawsuit. And, but I went through and I did it all and I wrote up my report and I handed it in. Because when I got to the last slide, the bone marrows had shown that the patient had had flagrant leukemia. She clearly had been treated. She went into remission. She relapsed. She was treated again. And then remission, 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 remission. And the rules in hematology are that the remissions get shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm -hmm. And this remission, the second one, had outlasted the first by about three times. The first remission was only four months. The second was a year. And then the bone marrow stopped. And I thought, ah, she died on treatment while she was in her second remission. And the family is angry and they're suing the doctor. And isn't that a tragedy? But on the other hand, I hadn't been told anything. So I didn't know. So I handed the report to the physician who had asked, who is, by the way, still a very good friend of mine. And I said, so what is this? Is this a lawsuit or is it a miracle? And she replied, it's a miracle. And the patient was still alive eight years after a really short first remission. And I couldn't believe it. And I said, what? And uh, then it was revealed to me that the report would go to the Vatican. So I didn't know why I was doing this. Uh, and what had happened was that the case had been submitted to the Vatican as the third and final miracle in the dossier for Marie Marguerite Duville, and the Vatican had rejected it. Okay. And they'd rejected it as almost like a sports report on a technicality. <laughs> okay. The Vatican argued that she had never had a first remission. It was just those Canadians doing wishful thinking. And the, that was so insulting to the treating physicians and to the patients and to the poor nuns who had submitted the, the file in all good faith, uh, literally, uh, that they appealed and they said, what if we find a hematologist who knows nothing? <laughs> it's me, <laughs> who knows nothing whatsoever. And what if that hematologist sees that there is a remission and then a relapse? And the Vatican was right in the sense that we know of certain cases of very prolonged first remissions. What we didn't know was where a second remission could be so much longer than the first. So I was fascinated by this. I'm not a Catholic. My husband is Jewish. We, you know, we're just, we didn't know about canonization, but we realized that this was a really interesting story. And not only that, it was exciting because she was the first person born in Canada to be so close to sainthood. Um, and so the Vatican actually used my report and reopened the uh, consideration and reconsidered 
and then decided, yes, it was a miracle. They didn't ask me if it was a miracle. They asked me if I could explain it. Uh-huh. And of course I couldn't because I don't know why. There must be some reason why, why she survived. And by the way, she's still alive. She's still so 40 alive. Years later. 40 years later, yes. Have you ever talked with this person? Yes, well, the Vatican uh, investigation continued in... Uh, and it required me to go before an ecclesiastical tribunal to recognize my report. Then they required me to meet her and examine her and decide if I would change my mind. I, I think almost to test whether I thought she was lying or to test our allegiance to the truth. I don't know, but we were required to meet each other, which I'd never met her before. It was very embarrassing for both her and for me. Uh -huh. And then I had to go back to the tribunal and um, then wait. And of course, it's all closed door and you don't know what's happening. And then all of a sudden, we read in the news that uh, she will be canonized on the 9th of December, 1990. And that was rather exciting. And my part in it was very small. But um, I think it was fairly instrumental by the sounds of it. <laughs> wow. Well, um, the nuns couldn't pay me for my testimony because if they did, they, they paid the fee that any hematologist would get for reading a bone marrow. That was a requirement because um, the hospitals must not be saddled with the costs of the canonization investigation. So they paid the fee. Indeed. Uh, but they, they felt bad because I had to keep going for free to all these tribunals all the time and I couldn't do my other work. And uh, so they invited me to the canonization. <laughs> I know, I'm Forrest Gump, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um at first i thought nah, nah, i can't do that and then i thought wow why not and uh, my friend the other physician said oh you have to come I, I mean think of this this is the first canadian the first canadian woman becoming a saint uh and they want you there they wouldn't have invited you and and if you go you are honoring the the whole agenda yeah. And so I asked if I could bring at my own expense, my husband, the Jewish husband, and they said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so off we went to Rome. And that is a whole long story in itself. We were robbed a few hours after we arrived. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> it was we're here because of a miracle <laughs> and you get robbed right off the airplane? Oh right God. off the airplane. I'm not joking. They, and he was he was working on his PhD and they stole all his books from the back of the car as, as well as our winter coats. It was December. But um, <laughs> um, we survived. It, it's a great journey. Um, a whole radio program in itself. <laughs> and... Um, we went to the ceremony. My husband was siphoned off and taken to a place toward the back, but not too far from the Baldacchino. And I found myself sitting in the front row with the patient and uh, the other treating physician and the nuns who were the postulators in the, in the case. And after the ceremony was over, uh, we all joined hands and we were hurried out behind a curtain. And it was a receiving line for Pope John Paul II. <laughs> so I... Wow. And as he came along the line, uh, some of the nuns were overcome and they were kissing his hands and falling on their knees. And it was just, Whoa, what are you going to say? Here he comes. And uh, we were introduced to him by the father, who was the uh, priest diplomat in uh, the Vatican at the Holy See. 
And uh, John Paul II says to me and Jean Drouin, the other doctor, are you nuns? <laughs> and I said, oh no, Holy Father, I'm a mother. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, when I thought about it, I thought, this is the Pope. I could have talked about women as priests, or I could have mentioned birth control. They're all kinds of <laughs> I let it go. I just let it go. I was just amazed that I was meeting the Pope. And um, Did you, at 3 o'clock in the morning that night, were you like, oh, I should have said this? <laughs> pretty much after. Uh, well, he... Father Bouchaud was uh, amazing. He knew I was also a historian, although still only beginning. And he gave me the bound testimony of, of the miracle, which I know we're on the radio, but I'll show it to you. Here it is. This is what the book the Canadians put together. Oh, wow. And it has uh, hospital records and uh, of the patient's trajectory through the... Uh, through the hospital and then it has all my testimony at the front and it has a list of cast of characters and it's got everything in there about the miracle and he said we thought you'd like to have this book um because you're a historian as well as a physician uh -huh. and i thought oh wow i'm going to be in the vatican archives and there's a an introduction to the cast of characters here in the front so you can figure out who's who and when i'm introduced i'm called una doctoressa hematologia Di fama internazionale. And, <laughs> and my friend like said to me, oh, that's a typo. What they meant was, it's infama nazionale. <laughs> so as Père Bouchot handed me this book, I thought, wow, I'm going to be in the Vatican archives. That was the hematologist in me. But the historian in me thought, what are all the other miracles? Uh -huh. Where are those books? Uh-huh. What do they say? And I realized that this miracle investigation was extremely complicated scientifically because the, the hematologists weren't just saying, no, no, we don't believe you. They were invoking the most up-to-date hematology in their arguments, as was I back at them without realizing why. I thought it was some aggressive lawyer I would be facing, not a priest. Yeah. And so it really made me wonder what proportion of miracles are medical, what proportion of them involve doctors who are skeptics or atheists, what changes through time in those things that are miracles, because a leukemia, which we think of as an aggressive and dangerous disease, didn't exist 200 years ago. So you didn't have any expectation that someone should die of it. If someone got a fever and a few bruises and then got better, Everyone would be happy for them, but they wouldn't be astonished because there was no concept, no disease concept of miracle at that time. So um, time went by, more time. <laughs> and when I got a sabbatical, I took a week in the sabbatical to visit the Vatican and see if they would let me in. <laughs> I, to go I to the Vatican archives and library. Yes, the, the dream of every historian, even if they're not necessarily studying Roman Catholic history. Not every historian. I would say that I never dreamed of going to the Vatican <laughs> until I was a down and out hematologist uh, and had this strange experience, this close encounter okay. with, with the miracle and with the canonization process. But like 
all historians, I'd heard that the Vatican did maintain an archive, and I knew there were books published on how to use it, and I saw that they did, they kept the records by saint. So the process for each saint and making a saint, ever since the Counter-Reformation, they've been doing that since about 1588. So I thought, well, I don't know, my Latin's not that good, and um, I'm mostly up to date on the 19th and 20th century, so let's see how we do. And I went there, and I politely explained who I was, and all I had was a letter from the dean saying that I was who I claimed to be, and I was looking at miracle files within an hour. Are you Really? I would expect it would take months to, if you even got the approval, but no, it was now maybe they make you do it in advance now with the internet. It was, it was the, my sabbatical in the year 2000 that I first went there uh, to see if they'd let me in. And I, I booked myself a week in Rome. I took a really cheap hotel near the train station and um, they were so helpful and so willing and Skeptics always say to me, oh, well, sure, miracles and saints, what could be better? You know, you weren't studying priests who abuse children. Uh, that may be, but they are accessible. They do have rules. Uh -huh. uh, you can only see three files a day. You can't ask for the third till you've given back the first. Mm -hmm. They close at one o'clock every afternoon. But they explained to me how I could use the library in the afternoon but I discovered in the library, you have to have ordered the book before noon. And I wanted to stay in the archive till one. They said, oh, that's easy. You pretend you're a smoker. <laughs> <laughs> and you ask for the key to your locker. And you run downstairs and you go to the library next door. And you go in and register for the day in the library. And they give you a, a, a second locker in the library. You run upstairs and you order your books. You're limited to five books in the library. And then you go out into the courtyard as if you're smoking and sneak back into the archives through the courtyard. <laughs> so I was able to look at five books and three files every single day that I was there. And I got in the zone where I just, I would be there when it, the doors opened and I would leave when we were all thrown out at the end of the day. And then I'd have one day a week on my longer stays to visit Rome and it was wonderful. I love Rome. I like it better than Paris. <laughs> and, but it took a long time. And when I set out, I didn't first, as I told you, I didn't know if they would let me see anything. And then when I realized I could see things, I got this holistic sort of need to make a database, just like I had done for the um, Canadian doctor way back. So I made a, a database of all the miracles that I investigated. And I maxed out at 1,400 miracles covering 400 years. Wow. And you and uh, several, a couple of books emerged from Yep, that. a couple of books emerged from that. One is called Medical Miracles. <laughs> and the, the other is called Medical Saints. And the Medical Miracles is about what I learned on those miracles in the Vatican archives. The Medical Saints is more about veneration of saints in our time through the case study of a pair of twin brother saints who are doctors huh. named Cosmos and Damien. And in my travels doing all this miracle work, I discovered that there is a feast day to them in Toronto uh, every September with a big parade and uh, people experience miracles at it. And I got really interested in what that's about because it takes place in the shadow of the University Hospital Network in Toronto. 
and I was interested in the, the dialogue that goes on in the minds of people who are feeling themselves healed through medicine and through religion. And uh, I thought at first it was one project, but it just became too big and amorphous. And so it divided into two books. Okay. <laughs> what, a, what an extraordinary story. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I guess you didn't see that coming when you were uh, still doing your MD and thinking about doing a PhD. Nor did I see it coming, nor did I see it coming when I was doing my PhD. Yeah. Okay, so you, we've we've learned so much about your story uh, and th and doing the research at the Vatican and and publishing a couple of books uh, from that on medical saints as well as medical miracles, which is really amazing. And and just congratulations on 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 all of this. But uh, you've you've published extensively uh, in other regards too. And one uh, area I found very striking is uh, the work that you've done in the past and even more recently uh, on uh, pandemics. And in particular, your book on the history of AIDS and a 2006 collection of essays that you edited or co-edited, I understand, entitled SARS in Context, Memory, History and Policy. So... Based on your introduction to that particular collection called Lessons and Disappointments, we have it's 2021, we've been living <laughs> through a pandemic. I have to ask, I'm sorry, but I wonder if there's any learning from these past works and pandemics that inform your views of the current COVID-19 pandemic. Well, of course there are, it's somewhat unavoidable. And yeah. uh, historians of medicine lead very quiet lives until a new disease comes along. And then suddenly we become the flavor of the month and journalists are calling us and they think about the black death and, and they remember the Spanish flu and they think about SARS and they want to know what the lessons are. And one of the biggest ones is that pandemics happen and there will be others and we can't prevent that. Nature is endlessly inventive. And so we must always prepare with the best knowledge that we've got. The second is that pandemics tend to follow a structure. And it kind of reminds me of the uh, stages of grieving that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about, where there's denial, there's anger, there's acceptance, there's, there's these stages where uh, people are confronted with uh, the danger and they don't want to believe it, then they get angry when the, there's controls, then finally everyone knuckles down, and then there's a denouement, an ending. And the ending happens because people prevent it as best they can, Mm -hmm. And it ends with new knowledge. And that new knowledge taught by the pandemic just passed is what leads to the policies we live with in the present. And we will be doing some adjusting, there's no doubt, once COVID-19 has passed, just like we did adjusting after SARS. And SARS was big, but it, it didn't reach the, anywhere near the proportion of COVID-19. Uh, and I would say Canada made bigger adjustments than many other countries that were affected because we were grievously affected compared to other places. Mm -hmm. And so some of the, the instruments that we have in place to confront COVID-19 were put in place following SARS. And there's no doubt that there will be new instruments put in place. What happens though, what happened after SARS is that there, there is a kind of a initial enthusiasm for those new 
policies. And then the enthusiasm wanes, and it wanes in different ways. It wanes in how much it's going to be taught or maintained, uh, how much money is going to be invested in it. And uh, we know that we made mistakes in our preparation for COVID-19 uh, since SARS. We had things that we kind of let go, like an mm -hmm. early warning system, etc. Uh, so on one level, you see this structure of the epidemic being repeated over and over and over again. And anything you might read about other uh, pandemics or epidemics, it, you can find those elements of the structure there. Uh, but it's not always the same. And one of the other lessons from history, not so much from a pandemic, but just from the last century, there are a lot of similarities between COVID-19 and uh influenza of a hundred years ago. But vive les différences, because we have so many things that they didn't have back then. We have antibiotics, which, okay, it's a virus. Still, super infection from bacteria happens. We can use antibiotics. We have steroids, which they didn't have, had not been purified then. We have oxygen in containers that can be breathed. We have ventilators, which had all, all of this got invented post-influenza of 100 years ago. So that if you get sick, you have a much better chance of surviving being sick than they did back then. Yes. So these are advantages, but they are only advantages. And this is what the public health people keep reminding everyone is that if you can have access to the hospital and to those modalities of treatment, that's why we have to flatten the curve. That's why we have to still keep doing the medieval methods of uh, social distancing, hand washing, Mm -hmm. wearing a mask these are these are things that have been known since forever because prevention is still the most important thing Indeed. And, and so the lesson is that yes it'll happen again and we will be human so we will react in the same kind of ways and we just have to keep the faith and keep doing those tried and true preventative things all along and okay. that there are some treatment modalities that weren't available in the past hmm so I want to shift a little bit to, uh, in terms of things that are unavailable now, uh, maybe we can shift the conversation to uh, your activism outside of academia related to drug shortages. A very strange segue here, but <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing, on uh, your side project, if you will, but one that you're uh, completely invested in, of course. Well, this, like my miracle project, is something that began in my life as a hematologist, and it ended up in my investigative hands as a historian. Um, I have been aware of drug shortages for uh, more than 10 years now, uh, mm -hmm. and I learned about them from my patients in the cancer clinic here in Kingston when they couldn't get drugs to control nausea, which is a common side effect of, uh, of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And one patient in particular wanted to stop taking her chemo because she she just couldn't tolerate the nausea and the drug wasn't available. And I couldn't understand why this old tried and true drug that had gone into a generic format could not be available. And through that one patient, I found out that it was a shortage right across the country of a drug that had been around since I was a medical student. Mm -hmm. 
And then I found out that there were lots of other drugs like that that were outside my sphere of practice. For example, drugs for epilepsy or drugs for chronic lung disease. These were not things that I used normally, but um, there were lots of drugs in short supply. And there had to be a reason because this didn't happen before and it was happening now. Mm-hmm. And I've been pulling on that thread now for um, more than 10 years. And I started a, a website in August of 2011. So it'll be 10 years old. Um that I call an activist website. It's a, an information website where patients can blog about their experiences and where I track down whatever information I can find about the causes of the drug shortages. Cause that's what I want to find out. I want to find out why we have this. And there's a lot of media reports. And I realized very quickly, it wasn't a problem created in Canada. It's a global problem. It relates to the international pharmaceutical trading system. And it is multifactorial so that at certain times in certain places, some causes matter more than other causes. And of course, everyone understands with COVID-19, there was a massive run on drugs that would be available for treating COVID-19 if they could, mm-hmm. even if it's only Tylenol for fever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see how an increase in the demand, market demand would lead to a shortage in supply, but there are lots of other reasons for it. And um, some of them are suspicious reasons. Uh, most doctors who hear about it think that it's because the drug companies are manipulating the market and taking away the cheap drugs so that you'll be forced to use a more expensive new drug. Uh, I don't really think that's the case. I think there's lots of other things going on with it, but I do worry that the cost or the price of generic drugs has sunk so low that there isn't much incentive in making them. So some of these drugs have only one or maybe two manufacturers. So that if there's a bump along the way, a hurricane or a flood that makes damage to a factory or an increase in demand, then suddenly there isn't enough and there's nothing to replace it. So, so these, these factors all play with each other. But what I cannot get past is why we can't fix that. Mm-hmm. And so my website and my publications along those lines have been more to raise awareness, try to get the government motivated to fix it. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for raising our awareness about it. It's I just learned quite a lot <laughs> about the pharmaceutical industry and also in a very short amount of time today. I'm glad we had the chance to talk about it. Um, I'd like to also now talk a little bit more about your more recent uh, research as well. You published a book in 2019 uh, on Easter Island <laughs> And I understand there was also a book that came out uh, earlier this year, or or excuse me, early in 2020, about a major medical discovery here in Canada, too. So maybe we can talk a little bit about these recent publications as well. Yes, I keep I keep thinking I'm done. And then something falls in my lap. And uh, (laughs) the the book about Easter Island was not something I ever imagined doing, but I was invited out to UBC to give a set of lectures over the course of a week uh, in 2014. It was January, and I didn't see the mountains once while I was there because it was typical Vancouver. Um, uh-huh. So because the weather was so lousy, I was I going to the archives, which is what I do when I go to new places, just to see what they've got. And I stumbled <laughs> on the medical expedition to Easter Island, and I didn't know that. Canada had a medical expedition to Easter Island. So I called up the materials to have a look at them. And out came three bankers boxes of files. And they had been left in the 1970s by an ecologist named Ian Efford. And 
I figured he was long gone. He must have retired back in the 70s. And uh, I started pawing through these records and I could not believe it. Canada led a major international expedition to Easter Island in 1964-5 when Lester Pearson was prime minister. And yet there seemed to be almost no publications had come out of it. There seemed to be very little history done about it. There was an article in something called the Rapa Nui Journal. Um, Rapa Nui is the name the Easter Islanders call their island. And uh-huh. I began pulling on that thread. And over the course of five years, I tracked down 17 of the scientists who'd been on the expedition who were thrilled to hear from me because it turned out there had never been a final report. Really? So the, all the work that they had done didn't really make go it didn't make it and the reason was complex Canada was participating in an international biological program and they were interested in human adaptability all of this motivated by fear of pollution radioactive fallout from the atmosphere tests and overpopulation and they were very worried about food security in those times too and so countries were proposing studies on human adaptability and a bunch of very clever people beginning at McGill uh, got the idea that they should study Easter Island because Easter Island was going to get an airport. There were only a thousand people on the island. The airport was going to come. And then what was going to happen to these people? Because everybody wanted to go there. Thor Heyerdahl had published his books. He'd made his Contiki expedition. Everyone was avid to go see the monumental statues that are on the island. Uh, And if they got an airport, there would be thousands of people coming, bringing who knows what germs with them. And the Canadians were very worried about a first contact situation that might decimate them, as did smallpox and tuberculosis with our Indigenous peoples here. Mm-hmm. So the proposal was to go and study every living thing on the island, including humans, mm-hmm. report it, wait for the airport, and then go back some 10 years or so after the airport to see what the impact had been and how the humans had adapted and the other living things. Well, they got into all kinds of trouble. And... Um, there were questions asked in the house by the auditor general <laughs> over whether or not this was a valid expense. Uh, they they ama- amazingly managed to get a Navy ship with 200 sailors to take them there. It was a small, a small team of 35. Um, and they wanted to go back, but they didn't have any resources. And the auditor general had condemned it for having been an inappropriate expense after they came back. So I think that one of the reasons the report didn't happen was they were waiting for the second half, but then Pinochet came along in Chile and Canada did a kind of a caper like we did in Iran and uh, diplomatic relations were broken off with Chile completely during that time. So the prospect of going back got ever more remote because they just couldn't do the second half. And uh, gradually the leaders of the expedition died. Uh, A lot of the young people who were grad students at the time Uh, went home to their countries, um, Scandinavia, in Europe, the United States, uh, and got on with their lives, finished their PhDs or their MDs or did what they were going to do. And these are the ones that are still living that I was able to find. And and they wondered, why is there no report? They weren't in charge, Mm -hmm. but they, they gave their data. The data existed, and I found most of it in the National Archives. Uh, so, um, 
my book is the story of the expedition. It summarizes the data that they found. And I realized I was about to print, publish it. And I realized that, to be honest, you can't write a book about a place where you've never been. So you went to Easter Island? But of course. <laughs> you did. Of course you did. <laughs> oh, my word. Well, I, I have to confess that for all this traveling I've done, I hate flying. I'm, I'm terrified of flying. I don't like it at all. And I would go out of my way not to have to go somewhere. But it just seemed intellectually dishonest to be writing a book about a place where I hadn't been. And I had interviewed all of these scientists who'd been there who said, oh, the people loved us. They loved us. And I'm thinking maybe they didn't love you. Yeah. And if I can find 17 scientists who went there, surely there are people on Easter Island who remember. Mm -hmm. And I owe it to those people to find out what they think. And so I went back. Uh, well, I went to Easter Island and I wasn't sure how I was going to manage. I, I can read Spanish, but I'm not very good at speaking it. It comes out Italian. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, so I took my um, classmate, she, she's also a doctor, an MD, who did her PhD at the same time I did with the same supervisor at the Sorbonne. Why? Because her husband had been posted to Paris. <laughs> but she is Mexican, and um, she came with me to be my amanuensis and translator. And I took my husband too, because really you need somebody to run interference for renting a car and finding a restaurant and doing all of the nuts and bolts stuff of getting around. And I had the luxury of just being in touch with people and contacting them and interviewing them. And while the Canadians had been there in 65, there was a rebellion. And in the history of the island, it is viewed as the beginning of democracy on the island. Oh. And they all remembered it, of course. And uh, I was able to interview the leader of that rebellion. He's still living. And uh, he startled me by saying that he would have been killed if the Canadians hadn't been there because the world was watching, thanks to the fact that the Canadians were there. And uh, so the, the story loomed well beyond the medical findings of the project to be a witness to the the advent of democracy on the island. And uh Far from not liking the Canadians, they really did love the Canadians. And <laughs> what was so sad was that they wondered why they didn't come back. That wait, that wait for 10 years didn't happen. They and were wanting them to come back. They were looking forward. And at that time, it was impossible. The mail was terrible. Uh, in fact, I've mailed two copies of my book to the island in August when the book came out last August. Well, now 18 months ago. And they still haven't arrived. Oh, wow. And I will arrive. Um, so someone who's going to Easter Island will carry one for me. But it, they are they are quite isolated. And and uh, so the other reason I wanted to go was not just to hear their side of the story, but also to see if I could do the second half. Yeah, I was going to ask. Like, okay, nobody went after ten years. You were at that airport. What happens or what's happening? Have are there the airport is amazing. It has one runway uh, that is also the taxiway because there's only ever one plane yeah. at a time. And um, it, it was built ostensibly uh, for weather. That's what they said. They were doing it for weather control. But it was actually to spy on Russia at the time. It was during the mm -hmm. Cold War. That, that's why they wanted the airport. And it opened in 66. But uh, gradually they realized that, wow, there's almost nothing in the South Pacific. So they extended it. And it is now enormous. And it is an airport fit for the space wow. shuttle. 
Should the space shuttle get into trouble, it can do an emergency landing on Easter Island, which is a little speck of a place. It's it's a tiny place. So, um, yeah, I went to the various authorities, to the governor, to the hospital, um, etc., trying to get the data to get the health status of the islanders. I couldn't do the plants mm -hmm. and animals like the Canadians had done earlier. Um, about how long do they live? Uh, what is the infant mortality rate? What is the co most common causes of death? And, and I was finally able to get all that data. And I made enough contacts on the island that I could get it from Chile as well, from Santiago. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the last chapter of the book is, is a small step towards the second half. The other thing that frustrates me a lot is that there are a number of uh, demographers and epidemiologists who have been studying Easter Island and they notice all these modern things that have gone on with the island, but they don't know about the Canadian study. So they had nothing to compare hmm. it with. Um, so they were starting, they thought from zero, when in fact zero was actually on the other side of the airport with the data that's now in my book. And, and I'm hoping it will be useful to them in some way. I also hope that it's readable. Uh, I had a blast doing that project. And there were some very comical things that happened while the people were on the island. There were love affairs. <laughs> there was a lot of personal animosity. You can imagine yeah. people isolated. Three people independently said to me, have you ever read Lord of the Flies? <laughs> Oh, God, there wasn't a pig head, was there? <laughs> there was one person that um, they picked on, and uh, and yet he was a genius. And it, it was just, it, it just, they, they did it too quickly. They didn't have a long time to plan for it because the airport was so imminent, and the idea was so brilliant. Yeah. And what let them get away with it, in part, was that they applied to the World Health Organization, uh -huh. That actually gave them seed money. It was only $5,000, but they gave them seed money and endorsed it as, as the Canadian project for the International Biological um, Program. But by the time they came back in disgrace with arguments going on all over the place, uh, one person was trying to undermine the whole thing. Um, they couldn't do the second half. It, there was despair that they weren't going to get liftoff. And and they they were they came back very sad and worried about what was going to happen to the islanders. So I wonder wonder what Alfred Crosby would say about, about the whole <laughs> expedition in the project. But it, it seems to me that there is still uh, a lot of research that does need to be followed up. I feel like this project does need to have some kind of conclusion. I want to know what the ecological impacts are on this new airport well not new it's decades old now or there's there is some work on that you know there were plants that were introduced that, that are toxic the horses are wild on the island uh some get tamed but um it, the plants are toxic to the horses and so right there you see a a, a change the island had a massive sheep farm with forty thousand sheep which were eating all sorts of other vegetation so they got rid of that and they planted eucalyptus trees so what you find in the biological and ecological literature are articles about individual plant species or topics or animal species. And um, a major study would be wonderful if it could be done. Now, Ian Efford, uh, the, the professor who left his records at UBC archives, turns out he was still living. He just got fed up with being an academic. <laughs> And he quit and he went to work for the government and he worked 
uh, in ecology for the Canadian government. And he conducted several major studies of Canadian lakes and waterways. He was especially interested in fish and plants. And he just published uh, a year ago a book on rhododendrons. But I'm very oh, sad dear. to report that he died suddenly just a few months ago. I view him as the patron saint of my project. Very fitting, patron saint. Indeed, indeed. So how about the other book that you published in uh, early 2020? I, uh, is it an edited collection? On no, the, uh, the book I published in early 2020 is uh, technically not mine. I edited it and I published it. Okay. Uh, but it is the autobiography of a Holocaust survivor whom I've known for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I found her because, again, it's another hematology history connection. Um, I was looking to flesh out the story of the discovery of a very important drug that cures childhood leukemia, the Vinca alkaloids. Okay. And uh, all hematologists in Canada know that it's a Canadian discovery, but we don't know details about it. And so I was looking into how could Canadians discover a drug in a plant that doesn't grow in Canada? How did that happen? And it turns out that um, there was a Canadian connection to the Banting Best Insulin Project in that uh, researchers, including Collip, who was the biochemist who worked with Banting and Best, were interested in looking at oral sources of insulin so that people could drink it rather than having to inject themselves. Even today, people have to inject themselves with insulin. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, rumored that there was a plant in Jamaica that uh, if you drank the tea, it would cure your diabetes. And so um, various people, very goodwill, ordinary people, including one um, governess of a couple of kids from Jamaica, brought the plant leaves to Canada and they were given to Collip and his team at the University of Western Ontario. And um, so they made the tea and they fed it to rats and nothing happened to the blood sugar. So they injected it <laughs> to see what would happen. And something happened. The rats all died. So they go, well, too bad. I guess that's not going to work. And um, I found the lab tech who was working with them. And she was curious why they had died. And she wasn't supposed to, but she was measuring all their white blood cells. And she noticed that they died with no white blood cells left at all. And that the injection had killed off all their white blood cells. And she wasn't sure if she should tell them that she was doing this. But this woman was a Holocaust survivor who had learned all of these techniques as a displaced person in Sweden at the Karolinska Institute. And who had finished her degree as an engineer and had been moved by the, the powers that be to Canada and resettled with her parents in London, Ontario. Uh, and so she was trying desperately to keep all her skills alive. Uh, and she said, frankly, we weren't too busy. So I was measuring the blood sugar. I was also measuring the white cells. But she decided she better tell the boss. The boss was Robert Noble, a very wise, smart guy. And he had a biochemist working with him named Charles Beer. And these two men are at the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame commemorated for their discovery of the Vinca alkaloid. But the substance in that periwinkle plant from Jamaica, it's not the periwinkle that grows here, it's a different kind, Madagascar periwinkle. That substance was the basis for vincristine and vinblastine, which are drugs that cure childhood leukemia. And Charles Baer purified it. 
And so I got to know her when I did that discovery. Uh, we published the article back in the year 2000, I think, and it won a little tiny prize for being a good article about therapeutics. But I knew her story, and I asked her, as did all her friends, write your story. She really was a Holocaust survivor. And she did. And she, she gave me a copy of it. She just said, you know, this is for my friends. This is my story. But when I retired, I, I saw, and it was on my list of things to do, was that I could English it a bit. She's Polish. And so the story was written with a bit of an accent, but all the words, all the ideas, everything are hers. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I basically cleaned up the English to her story. And um, she had personal photographs, which I integrated. And she, she ended up in both Auschwitz and Belsen and was in Belsen at the liberation. And my father was part of the liberation of Belsen. So I was able to supply the Belsen photographs from my father's uh, collection. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, we sort of knew it, but it, it really came together and it seemed an appropriate thing to do because I was now retired and I really wanted her to, to have her story out there. Um, it's never going to be a bestseller, uh, but it, it's a true story. And uh, the other thing that makes it different is that she wasn't Jewish. Her father was a Polish army officer who was working in the Polish underground and he vanished. He disappeared in the war and she and her mother were arrested. And they were with Jews in, in the camps. And so it's more testimony along the same lines from a different angle. And uh, she also writes about her happy childhood uh, in Poland. And uh, the book ends with her coming to Canada. And, and I, then I wrote an epilogue about what uh, happened to her after and, and mentioned, of course, her important discovery and the, mm -hmm. of the leukemia drug. She's still alive. She's 94 and she's in a senior's home and I'm very worried about her. Yeah, indeed. With what we know is happening in seniors homes with the coronavirus, I hope that she'll be okay. We hope so too. And we had a, we had a book launch planned for her uh, that was going to take place on the anniversary of the liberation of Belson last year. But uh, of course it all had to be canceled and it's on indeed. hold. We'll do it. Well, what an extraordinary book. I, I highly, <laughs> well, I, I think that we should, everybody should have a look at this along with your deep catalog of books because everything. I've never, I've never done a book project that wasn't fun. Every, every project has just been so interesting. And, and I, I learned so much from my students and I learned so much from writing these books. And it, it's just been a privilege to have a job like I had. Okay, well, Jackie, I got the hot take now. Are you going to write your own memoir? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Um, first you of all, I wouldn't. The most interesting story. <laughs> this, this, this particular talk will have to be archived. Then. <laughs> <laughs> you have just such an incredible story. Queen's Archives collected my papers. So if somebody wants to do it, it's all there. <laughs> I was surprised that they actually wanted to do that, but it saved me a lot of trouble when I had to vacate my office. I just handed them boxes and boxes. <laughs> and uh, and they're, they're valiantly putting up with every now and then I'm looking for something and I can't find it. And then I realize, oh, maybe it's in the archives and they find it. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's better than keeping it myself. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I hope you will consider writing a memoir. I think it would be <laughs> extraordinary and uh, a, a, such a wonderful read, I think, for everyone. Um, okay, so we've been chatting quite a, quite a while, and but one thing we haven't actually talked about is your recent induction to the Order oh. of Canada, an order that recognizes the outstanding merit of Canadians who make major differences to Canada through their lifelong contributions. Again, congratulations, Jackie. Clearly, you've, <laughs> you've done so much. Oh, my gosh. Did you see this coming? No, of course not. You, it's not something I think people may lobby for it, but I've, I understand that they don't like it when they see people promoting themselves. It's not, it's not something I would have imagined. As you've heard, my, my work is quite local and I delve into projects and I hope I've done a good job on them and I hope I did a good job for my students. But to see that it would be considered a contribution to the country is I, I, I didn't think of myself in that league at all. And um, I don't really crave uh, media attention at all either. I, I'm grateful to get it, especially on the drug shortage issue, so that if I'm asked to talk about that, I will do so. But uh, otherwise, I'm just not that interested in, in all the attention. But what I've discovered since it was announced is how much people like it and how they recognize it as, as something significant, even if they haven't got a clue what I did. So I've, I've been hearing from med school classmates that I haven't seen or heard from in almost 50 years. Wow. <laughs> um, it's very touching to be remembered. And it's interesting what grabs them about the whole business. It is an award that clearly Canadians feel a certain ownership of. And so if they see someone they know get it, then it, it shines a light. The other thing that I've been thinking about this week is that one of the reasons I'm hearing from people so much is that the times have been so gloomy. They've been so gloomy uh, with the pandemic and they've been very gloomy and stressful ever since the American election on November 3rd. Yes. And uh, this is a little bit of good news that kind of tangentially affects them. And, and so they reach out. I have dozens of messages I have to answer still and I'm, I'm grateful for everyone that comes and fascinated by the fact that people will will notice and reach out and and I feel greatly humbled because honestly it's like getting an award for having had fun for 30 plus years. Wow. Well, again, congratulations. Uh, I guess you don't know who who nominated you. It's all super secret. It's it's so super secret. It's very interesting. They don't um, they won't tell you who nominated you, and I understand that they tell the nominators not to tell. And uh, I, you know, I've had a checkered career, so I was wondering if it came from historians or from doctors or from drug shortage people. I I wasn't sure where it came from, and uh, I'm. Given the way the citation is written, I, I think it's historians or somebody who knows me in that capacity. And I'm honored by that. And I'm especially pleased that it means that someone out there understands why history is important to medicine in the present. Fantastic. Well, and I'm so happy that you were able to uh, get that recognition. But uh, also understand why <laughs> why you got the recognition too. Oh, I, I have the Order of Canada. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, amazing. Phew, that was hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, 
just not something you expect. And and also the first time somebody asked me that question, I think it was the day the announcement. I said, "Well, why do you think you have it?" I said, "Oh, because I'm old." <laughs> 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 if you. It, a lot of wonderful honors have come my way over time, and and every single one of them has been made possible by queens, in the sense that I had a platform, and and I had protection, I had I had the ability to dare, the security to dare, because I had that job. And what did I dare? I dared delve into things that were fascinating to me, and 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 I got to pass it on to students who are really smart and like to hear about it and ask excellent questions. And for this, you get an award. It's very interesting. And so it, on some level, you know, many people have said, oh, it's well-deserved. And I, I just don't know what deserve means in that sense. So there's so many people who do things in this country that are harder and for which they've suffered far more than I have. Uh -huh. All right, on that note, I wonder, before we close our spot together today, Jackie, have you any advice for students and, and even junior scholars uh, thinking about careers in medicine and or moving on to graduate school or postdoctoral studies and beyond? Number one is don't work on anything that you aren't passionate about. Just choose the subjects that interview. Just choose the subjects that interest you and intrigue you because the the passion will take care of things and it'll make the work seem easy that's one number two is lean on powers that be yeah. to bring back mandatory retirement for professors <laughs> I, I retired because my son and his wife both with PhDs were unable to find jobs in Canada and I it breaks my heart to see so many excellent scholars out there who can't find jobs because other people won't give up their positions. And as a historian, I can just keep working. I will have published three books since I retired. Nothing is stopping me from carrying on. I realize it's more difficult for doctors and scientists. On the other hand, part of mentoring is not just having how many PhD students in your stable, it's how you land them into jobs that are meaningful. And Obviously, the people who are in the trenches still learning and our students can't do that by themselves, but they can find their allies among the, the professors and start to make a change. We, we need to think about that as a serious problem. All right. Well, on that note, have you anything else to add about your career, your research, your time at Queen's? Anything? No, no. thank you. You've been very generous with your time and I, I feel I've gone on too long. It's been fun talking to you. Oh, thank you very much, Jackie. <laughs> you have given us so much of your valuable time. We really do appreciate it. What an extraordinary story. And I, I like how you mentioned that the award uh, or the, the Order of Canada induction Part of it is, you know, a, a highlight in such dark times, but having a conversation with you is, has been a real highlight, uh, I think, for, well, certainly for myself and I hope our listeners, too. You have such an extraordinary story. Please write the memoir. <laughs> <laughs> or as, for the people out there listening, <laughs> make an appointment at the Queen's Archive. <laughs> You can dig up the stuff on Jacqueline Duffin and start writing that book. <laughs> Feel the passion. 
All right. So uh, thank you again, Jackie. Uh, we really do appreciate your time. Uh, we hope to have you back in the studio, the virtual studio or the live studio sometime in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.